0: six fifty
1: three and go for Mike Slater in three two one you're listening to Mike Slater part of the next generation of talk radio only on the blaze radio network
2: Lighter Crusaders! America's the greatest country in the world thanks for being here. last hour I want to uh, play this uh, video here this interview that I, I wish I played a year and a half ago but I just found it um I don't have a really good reason to play it, but I have no reason to not play it. And I think it's just something we should know. Uh, So this is an interview that Trump did with Connie Chung back in 1990. First, though, I want to play his reaction to this interview. So he did uh, an appearance on the Joan Rivers show. So this is Donald Trump on the Joan Rivers show talking about the interview he recently did with Connie Chung. Here it is. 1439.
3: I guess I've always felt that the press was inherently honest. And now I cross the line to say that Uh generally speaking the press is inherently dishonest. They're much more interested in the press that you really are. Well, I mean, you know, look, you maybe don't put this on because it's CBS, but Connie Chung is a disaster. She did an interview. Oh, please, please do an interview with me. It's gonna be so much fun. Now I had watched her interview Marlon Brando a couple of weeks before. She was a disaster. She was like a little child. I mean this girl has this woman has less talent than anybody I know of so I watched her interview Marlon Brando and she was giggling and laughing and I thought she made a fool out of herself and a lot of other people did too and she did too because she told me before my interview that she was extremely soft and she got very badly you know discredited so to speak for so I said oh great because now she's gonna show everybody how tough she is and she came on so strong and it wasn't that she was strong or that these questions were impossible to answer Uh, she got high ratings, she got very good, good ratings, some people loved what she did probably, and many people hated what she did, as I understand it. And then she called up, because she did this just before the whole separation from Ivana. So she called up the next day, and she wanted to know, could she do a second interview because she wanted to cover it? She sent me roses afterwards, and I won't tell you what I did with the roses, but... <laughs> Give the, a hint. The level, well, I cut them up and sent them back, half back. Ah, I sent no. her back the stems. Actually, I did. I sent her back the stems, but we kept the, kept the top but she, you're my kind of guy. There's a level. (laughs) There was a level of unprofessional. It was like a child. It was like you're being interviewed by a child. And I, I said to myself, why is this woman being paid all this money to do this? Because she's really not very good. Hold up somebody else. Let
2: me stop there. So return the roses, with just the stems. Okay. So there he is talking about the interview. Let's play the actual interview. Uh, It's like 15 minutes. So we just cut up a bunch of different parts of it. Um, So this is the interview he did with Connie Chung.
3: Somebody else that you've never even heard of who's got great wealth and said, I want to do an interview. Number one, they'd be afraid to do it. Number two, they wouldn't want to do it. Number three, they wouldn't know how to do it. And number four, they're probably right. They're probably right? They're probably right. What I do you mean know. they shouldn't? Well, I think I think there's a nice safety net in not doing it. Oh. There's no reason to expose yourself to millions of people. There's Do no... you know why you do it? Why, you tell me. You love the publicity. Oh, I hate the publicity. Oh, come on, get oh, no, out of I'm here. I'm telling you, I hate the publicity. Oh, please. I hate it, and except for the fact that it's fun as a sparring session. I mean, this would normally not even be fun. This is this is fine, and this is fun, no, and all that stuff, come but I don't on. like the, you No, know, you're like, on all these covers no, of Playboy fame. I mean, uh, what do you mean, Newsweek or It time? happens to be, it happens to be, or both. It oh. happens to
2: <laughs> Do we have the second part of that?
3: or well, both it oh. happens th- when well, they are I sell very great condominiums in New York I have the best they casinos in the world great. they're Come the best, on. What, they're in the the best. maybe if you can try and answer this question without giving me the normal spiel huh what is the normal spiel I don't well, know Well, the normal spiel is well the fact is is that many rich and powerful people do try to remain anonymous, but you became very public very clearly by your own design. I don't know if it was by my own design. You mean the publicity? I do developments which get a lot of publicity. I mean if tr- if God. I didn't do Trump I mean this. If Trump Tower weren't a great building on Fifth Avenue and fifty seventh street by Trump a young Tower guy. One building in New York City with zillions of buildings. Trump Tower was built by a because young you guy, guy in a very to important to location. No, know I don't how? I don't think it was by design though. I think that. Did it happens, so but I don't. Wa- no, Come on. I, I want to be innocent. I've always wanted to be innocent. My just entire life has been devoted to being innocent. Is it, little Donald? <laughs> but I don't know that it was by design. Did I once you, call you and ever say, Connie, we have to do an interview? We have to do this. It's great. It's going to be the greatest thing. Did okay, Donald Trump didn't call us, but he did do this interview just before an avalanche of publicity about his marriage descended on the empire he worked so skillfully to build. <laughs> Is it true about? The invincibility
2: of the Trump name is not. So a lot going on there. He talks about how he doesn't love the attention. For, so again, I, I mentioned this in the last hour, but isn't it interesting how low key he is? If you watch old Trump interviews, he's always down here. Right? He's like, Connie, I got the best, the best towers. What you? Right? He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't talk fast or loud. Very controlled, very subtle. But about the publicity, um, I think it's easy. I think it's true, and it's easy to conclude that Trump is an egomaniac and someone who needs his ego to be fed. Uh, also, someone who is insecure, and people who are insecure project the opposite of their insecurities, right? So somewhere, for some reason, something from his childhood or wherever, uh, Donald Trump is a, is has a fear of being poor, so, or something like that, right? So he projects wealth with over-the-top gold furniture and decorating and stuff like that. So, okay, let's say those things are true. That's easy. Why has it worked for him? Why has it worked for him? Whether, he did it, whether he's done those things or he acts this way on purpose, why does it work? That's what I want to talk about here. So talked about this on my local show. I got to this point. And then I looked up and I saw on the TV, President Trump was introducing uh, the King of Jordan uh, to the White House. And he called the King of Jordan the warrior king. And he praised him for being such a great warrior, such a strong warrior. And I was like, warrior king? I don't know a lot about King Abdullah II of Jordan. So I was like, why did he call him the warrior king? Phones just blew up. Everyone calling in with all these facts about King Abdullah II of Jordan. And how he was a commander of their, their like their version of the Navy SEALs, and he's this awesome. So some of the stories that people shared were true, and some were not true, but still believable, right within the realm of possibility. One of them was that when ISIS killed a Jordanian pilot, King Abdullah II himself got in, a, in an F-16 and flew a bombing raid over ISIS. Okay, we people call and tell me that. And I heard that I was like, um, that sounds unlikely, but based on the other stories I heard about him, it wasn't totally crazy, right? Like if you told me Nancy Pelosi got in an F-16 and flew a bombing raid, I'd be like, okay, like no way. But like, it's like, oh, like maybe like, did he? So I had to do some research and it turns out he didn't, but it was within the realm of possibility, which is crazy. And it reminded me of a scene from Braveheart where William Wallace gets in front of his army. And he goes, Sons of Scotland, I got bad Scottish. I am William Wallace. And this guy goes, You're not William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. He goes, Oh, yes, I've heard he kills men by the hundreds and shoots fireballs from his eyes and lightning bolts from his eyes. (laughs) Everyone laughs. Then he goes on. He's like, I am William Wallace. And he starts his whole speech. There was a legend of William Wallace when he was still alive. Like, you're not William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. There's a legend about King Abdullah. Oh, did you hear King Abdullah got in his F-16 and dropped bombs? It's hard these days, especially. Easier for William Wallace. (laughs) Um, You know, when Abraham Lincoln was elected president, most people in America didn't know what he looked like. So it's easier back then to have legends grow up around you while you're still alive. Much more difficult today. So what does this have to do with Trump? Ooh, it's all the same. I'll, I'll break it down next to the story of Columbus. I promise this next segment will all come together. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater.
1: We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. on the Blaze Radio Network. Okay,
2: bring it together. So I was looking through the 48 laws of power to to figure out where this, uh, what we were just talking about in the last segment uh, applies. Um, so law 18 is do not build a fortress. Isolation is dangerous, right? Trump gets out there all the time. He's always in the public eye. He doesn't, he's never been uh, isolated. You know, Connie Chung did the whole thing. Like, you know, most billionaires try to remain private. Uh, Trump has never done that. Uh, Law 24 is play the perfect courtier There's something there. Um, Law 39 is stir up waters to catch fish. He's always doing that. But this is the one I'm going to go with. I'm going to go with law 34. Be royal in your own fashion. I think this explains Trump uh, and and explains why he's been so successful, like it or not. So Robert Greene tells the story of uh, Christopher Columbus, a man who most people know nothing about. So it is, it was believed that Columbus descended from Italian aristocracy, the upper class. And for hundreds of years, people thought this because his son wrote a biography about his dad that said he uh, descended from, from an emperor of Constantinople. Totally not true. Christopher Columbus was the son of a guy who sold cheese. And and not like, uh, well, Italy's largest cheese manufacturer. No, like a a cheese vendor, like guy on the street sold cheese. So Columbus made up this whole story about his nobility, made it up. Now, because he made it up, or one reason why he made it up uh, was he was able to marry into a family that had connections to Portuguese royalty. So he was able to get a meeting with the King of Portugal. And that's where he made his pitch to look for a westward voyage to Asia. Now he had two stipulations. He said, if I discover any new land on the way, I must be the governor of that land. And I want 10% of all the profit of any commerce done on this land that I discover for all time. Everyone, all of my descendants will get 10% of the profit for all time of this land. Now, here's the thing with those two bold offers: Columbus was a nobody. He not only was he just a merchant, he knew nothing about navigation. This is the craziest thing. Like, if, if you're just hearing this for the first time, you're like, well, hold on, wait. We have a holiday, Columbus Day. We learned about Christopher Columbus growing up. Like, what are you talking about? He didn't know how to, he couldn't use a quadrant. A quadrant was what the sailors used back then to read the stars. He didn't know how to use it. He couldn't navigate. He's never led a group of men. He had no details whatsoever on how he was going to find a passage to, to Asia. But he just went to the king and made these big, bold, yet vague promises. The king of Portugal said no. But Columbus learned a lesson. He thought he was going to go in there and the king was going to laugh at his proposal. He thought the king was going to laugh and, and he thought the king was going to question his credentials and question his background, but he didn't. The king didn't question any of that. The king was like, hmm, mm, okay, uh, no, thank you. Right? <laughs> Christopher Columbus was like, what? Why did the king not question? Because Columbus was so confident. And the king assumed that if someone was going to demand such a high price, he had to be worth it. It's the, it's the equivalent of uh, walk around like you know what you're doing, right? If you're at like a concert or something and you want to get behind the scenes or you're at some event, walk, walk with confidence. Like, you're like oh, obviously I'm supposed to be behind the scenes here. Like, I, I work here, like I, right? Walk with confidence and no one will question you. That's what Columbus did, but talking to the king. So long story short, he eventually met with the queen of Spain, who indeed gave him three ships named... Three ships named Nina, Pinta, Santa Maria, and gave him in the the contract the title of governor of whatever land he discovers. But little side note: in the fine print, the queen took out the part where he gets ten percent of whatever uh, commerce is done in the new land. And Columbus never read the fine print. Signed the contract anyway, and obviously would have had more money than anyone ever uh, if that was in there. Anyway. So this is Robert Greene. He says, as an explorer, Columbus was mediocre at best. He knew less about the sea than did the average sailor on ships. Could never determine the latitude or longitude of his discoveries. Mistook islands for vast continents and treated his crew badly. But in one area, he was a genius. He knew how to sell himself. How else to explain how the son of a cheese vendor managed to ingratiate himself with the highest royal and uh, aristocratic families? Columbus had an amazing power to charm the nobility. I think Trump has an amazing power to charm the, the lower and middle class. Right, the opposite, but same idea. It's about the charm, the charisma. He projected a sense of confidence that was completely out of proportion to his means. He said, "Not this was not the the confidence, the the uh, the, the aggressive, ugly self promotion of an upstart. It was a quiet and calm self assurance." So I think I'll bring this up because I think that's. Trump it's a weird mixture of both of them right right so his wealth and his success flaunted right gold everything giant jet it's not just a uh, you know a jet it's a 747 or whatever it is right and he'll point it out all the time but there's still a like a, in a weird way it's 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 like a it's like a quiet confidence about it. it's like it's not that big of a deal to him. And that's why in that Connie Chung interview, he was like, Oh yeah. You know, publicity is not really my thing. <laughs> what? Of course it's your thing. Nah, I don't I don't like doing this. You didn't call me. Did, I didn't call you. You called me. I don't. It really, really interesting. Last quote here from uh, Robert green. He says, uh, the crown, place it upon your head and you assume a different posture tranquil yet radiating assurance never show doubt never lose your dignity beneath the crown or it will not fit it will seem to be destined for someone more worthy do not wait for a coronation the greatest emperors crown themselves and if you look back at trump during the campaign i think there was a tranquil yet radiated assurance And I think that made people say, well, yeah, of course he'll be in the next, like not, not the media hated him, Right. But I think most people were like, oh yeah, like he's presidential. He should be the next president. And I think that's why he is. And I think he's going to continue to project that same. It's, it's so because I know there's people listening who are like, what are you talking about? He's the most loudmouthed, obnoxious, in your face, arrogant, egotistical. Yeah. Weird. Like sometimes, but sometimes he's the opposite. Go back, does go back and watch old interviews, and actually any even current interviews. When he does a one-on-one interview with anyone today, it's I, which I has he done one since he's been president? I don't think so. Maybe when he was just inaugurated, uh, but it's still very calm. It's very calm, very like oh you know here we are. So he projects both. Uh, that's interesting. Now this begs the question: Why? Why do we like? Why do we like the confidence? Why do we like that? Where does that come from? I want to share a story coming up next of uh, a guy who spent two years—I think it was two years—in a remote tribe in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. Now, this is a tribe, like I mean, tribe. Like when you when I say tr- tribe, just whatever you imagine, like they like no clothes, tribe kind of thing, right? No contact with the outside world. They hunt for monkeys to eat and build their houses from things they can find in the jungle, right? Like that kind of tribe. Two years in this tribe. And he writes to this, this uh, researcher writes about this guy in the tribe who, and I'll just kind of give away half the punchline here. Who's a lot like Donald Trump. And the way the people in the tribe react about him, it's not too different from how people in America react to him either. We'll share that story coming up next. Slater radio on Twitter, one Uh, a lot of this stuff is just human nature. And and personally, I think Trump knows it. If he doesn't know the academic aspect behind it, he's lived it for 40 years. He knows what works and what doesn't. I got him to the presidency. I think it'll get him through the presidency as well. All right, we'll chat about this tribe in Papua New Guinea next. Mike Slater, show the Blaze Radio Network, spread the word.
1: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.
2: All right, one more story here. Uh, so a guy lived with a remote tribe in the mountains of Papua New Guinea for two years. Like straight up tribe with spears, naked, right? The whole thing, right? So there's this one guy in the tribe. His name was Kinnamnok. We're going to call him Jim just for the sake of conversation. So uh, this is the, uh, the researcher. Quote, he frequently boasted, was loud very prone to angry outbursts. Most Europe men, that's the uh, the tribe. So most of the tribe tend to keep their successes to themselves. They're quiet and never openly express anger for fear that it might make others sick. But Jim's manner was quite un-tribes-like, tribesman-like. So pretty much everyone uh, grows food in their garden in this tribe. There's like some of the men hunt, but they're not very successful. And if you catch something, it's a really big deal. <clears throat> Quote Given the possibility that hunting can greatly enhance a man's reputation, right? Because if you hunt, you're the man, right? The temptation for men to favor hunting over gardening is high. And the tribe's folk tales depict the bad ends that come to men who do. In these tortoise and hare type stories, the cautious gardener always comes out ahead of the flashy hunter. Just in case the message of that tale is not clear, the tribesmen also believe that men who have a run of luck in hunting have unknowingly married the female spirit who looks after the marsupials, because they hunt to kill monkeys. She first makes her new husband successful in the hunt, but soon after she will become jealous of his human wife and will eventually try to kill the husband. The first time a successful hunter, or excuse me, the first time a recently successful hunter comes ho- close to having an accident while hunting, he assumes that the marsupial spirit is ready to be done with him and stops hunting for a while. Right. So, people in this tribe, their nature is to be like, oh, like the hunter. That's awesome. You're the man. How cool. Right? But the culture came up with these stories. It says, no, don't. <laughs> you don't want to be the hunter. Do the gardening. You're going to come out ahead. Just like our tortoise the hair, right? Slow and steady, wins the race. Be the gardener. Also, if you're still tempted to be a hunter, if you're good at it, then you're going to unknowingly marry the female spirit of the marsupials and that spirit's going to kill you. So get back to the garden, right? That's culture that has created these, these stories. So back to Jim. Jim, pff, heck with that. He hunted all the time. Didn't even have a garden. Didn't even have a garden. So he goes out and he hunts. And when he wouldn't uh, find any uh, monkeys, he would, he would clutch his chest and he would say that the marsupial spirit was trying to kill him. And he'd do this whole act. Uh, but he never stopped hunting. Super weird guys. is what we're getting at, right? Strange character in the tribe. So this researcher, American researcher, goes up uh, to this tribe, spends some time, quickly finds out that Jim is super obnoxious and then realizes that everyone else thought he was obnoxious as well. Then came a day when the tribe thought that a neighboring tribe might come and take them over. And if this neighboring tribe was going to come and attack, they were sure that they would see Jim as a threat and kill him. So this tribe was very sad, very concerned that this might happen. Right, So like, no, we, we, we don't want this tribe to attack us because they're going to kill Jim. So the researcher's like, whoa, whoa, hold on. You guys hate Jim. Jim's obnoxious. Jim's a nut. Jim doesn't follow the cultural norms of the tribe. Jim goes hunting when uh, you, you, you value gardening. Why do you like Jim? Why are you worried about Jim? Shouldn't you be throwing Jim to the wolves? Like, what do you want Jim for? He said, quote, the outpouring of sorrow over Jim's possible removal from the community stunned me. I had to reevaluate my understanding of what he meant to people. So then he started going around. So at first he was like, hey, what do you think of Jim? Pretty crazy, right? And they're like, oh yeah, crazy Jim. And he's like, oh good, I'm not alone. So then he starts going around asking people who their favorite person in the tribe was and they all say Jim. He's like, well, hold on. You just told me a little bit ago that you think Jim's crazy. Also their favorite. In the years since I left the tribe, I've spent time trying to figure out why Jim was so popular among his people. And recently, I think I have found the answer. All right, here we are. Got the background? Let's roll. The tribe liked Jim because they thought he was a willful man. What does that mean? Quote, he did what he wanted without regard for others. People in the tribe think it is sometimes important for people to be willful. This is so, they say, because people sometimes have to push others a bit hard to make new things such as marriages and hunting parties and gardening groups come to life. But the tribesmen also tend to think that a little willfulness goes a long way. They also value an opposite quality they call lawfulness, a willingness to preserve things the way they are rather than to create something new. Most of the tribe spends their lives trying to find balance between willfulness and lawfulness, moving back and forth between their two values. Most people never realize either one completely. Quick time out. So you get those two things. So it's like, and we get this too in our society, right? You need a little push and pull, right? You need a little bit of, let's go out there. Let's try something new. Let's be a little crazy. But then you also need the back to basics. There's a book called, uh, what's the book called? The Millionaire's Club, maybe? I'll look it up here. And, uh, in the book, it's a novel. There's, a uh, a political consultant, campaign consultant, and the campaign consultant says there's two types of political campaigns, bright new day, back to basics. That's it. So your campaign messaging is either it's a bright new day or let's get back to basics. And it, it always cycles back and forth. And it's all about, uh, timing your campaign up with the mood of the country. What was Trump's back to basics. Make America great again. What was Barack Obama's? Hope and change. New. Bright new day. Obama. Or excuse me. That was Obama's. Trump's. Make America great again. Right. Right. Harkens back. So back to basic. So same back and forth this tribe. Right. Got to try new things. We need a little uh, little pep in our step. We need a little fire. Right. We got to get out there. But ooh, let's not go too far. Right. Let's bring it back. Bring about the basics here. Let's remember who we are, that whole kind of thing, right? So when you have this back and forth conflict, you can never really be one completely because you're always going back and forth. He says, uh, the researcher says, I think Jim captivated the other tribes people because he showed them what willfulness is in its fullest form. Most of them never follow him in realizing willfulness so absolutely. But in Jim, they saw what willfulness looked like when it was given free expression. I think that's Trump. I think people admire Trump and have for decades, right? This is not a new phenomenon. Like Trump didn't come out of nowhere. Politics like really distorted everyone's impression on him. Like my mom, so my mom loved, Barack Obama loves Hillary. Uh, she loved Trump when he was Trump in New York City. Uh, now hates him with a passion, right? Because of politics. but. But everyone like, loved the previous Trump, right? Admired by everyone. The, the, the TV show and all the rest, right? Why? Because he was like Jim. Over the top. Bold. Took risks. Did what no one else would do. How about this example? Put his name on the front of every building. Right? Trump this, Trump that, Trump stakes, Trump tower. No one would do that. Because we don't do that because we got to find a balance in our lives, Right? So it's, it's, I'm going to be bold and I'm going to build this giant new building, but I'm not going to call it, you know, Mike Slater tower. That's a little too over the top, right? so we're going to call it, uh, you know, uh, 44 tower. The t- it's on 44th street. We'll call it 44th street tower or something. Right. And Trump's like, I'm going to build a giant tower. I'm going to call it Trump tower. <laughs> and I'm going to do a hundred different buildings and they're all going to be called Trump something. Trump international, Trump hotel, Trump tower, Trump DC. Whatever. It's like, Whoa. So we look at that. And part of us is like, hey, man, why you got to be so bold? Why you got to be arrogant like that? But secretly, we're like, oh, man, I wish I was more like that. Right? So the people in the tribe, they look at Jim the and they're like, man, what a crazy nut. But deep down, they're like, oh, I wish I was more like Jim. Right? We admire Jim. We admire people who go full all in. And we look at them and we say, oh, that's what it would look like if we went all in. Okay, I'm not going to do that, but good for him. We'll wrap up here. The researcher says even as people tend to find characters like Jim fascinating, most people don't want to live like them. They're not role models. I don't want to live like Trump. Do you want to live like Trump? First of all, have you you seen his penthouse apartment in New York City, pictures of it? Like, who would ever decorate like that? Like, (laughs) I don't get that at all. The gold, everything in the marble columns. Like, I wouldn't, if I had a billion dollars, I wouldn't make my apartment look like that but you still admire it. Would you act like Trump? No, but there's like certain things, not everything, but there's certain things you're like, oh, that's, that's bold. And it has some appeal to it. I know I promise I'll wrap here. This is a comment um, to the article that this researcher wrote. This person said, it's so simple to me. We admire the iconoclast. So an iconoclast is someone who breaks the traditional norms, right? We admire the iconoclast for their daring. We struggle with our own insecurities and wonder how someone can have that that seeming confidence. We want to be the person who speaks their mind without regard for social standards. But most people don't have the stomach for the negative social consequences. We don't want to be them just just a bit more like them. interesting background to look at trump that's what's interesting because i mean we're talking about a tribe in papua new guinea but don't you see similar variables here between you and uh our very own jim trump don one 888 933 slater radio on twitter mike slater so the blaze radio network By the way,
1: you're listening to mike slater on the blaze radio network 888-900-3393. 888-900-3393. Mike Slater is
2: on. Slater Cassettes. I think we can wrap up here. This is good because it brings it back. We kicked out the show talking about Syria and, and how you may not trust Donald Trump with foreign affairs or whatever, but don't worry too much about it. Yes, he's the one who's ultimately going to make final decisions, but he has McMaster and Mad Dog uh, who are as brilliant and profound as and, and have as much depth and perspective as any two men in, in these fields could possibly have, right? They're, they're scholar warriors to the highest degree who are, uh, who are around him and I trust them and Trump's a good delegator in chief. And, and I think these two guys are, uh, are people that are worthy of, uh, some trust. So that being said, a couple weeks ago, do you remember president Trump was in Michigan and he told the story about how, um, he invited some auto, the audio executive guys to the oval office and they all said, Oh, we've never been here before. And president Trump's like, what do you mean? You've never been to the, you've never been to the white house. What are you talking about? And they're like, Oh yeah. Obama never invited us to the, I've never seen the white house. He's like, what? So, so his point was right. We had one of the biggest industries in the, in the country and no engagement whatsoever, like listening, no listening to what they might need or want or whatever. So I think that gives some insight into Trump is how he's running his White House right, with auto companies, but also with foreign affairs. I don't know if I shared this story here, but it's worth doing again if I have. Uh, the Afghan ambassador, his name is Dr. Mohib, he hosted a dinner at his, at his house of uh, gold star wives. Right? These are wives of Americans whose husbands uh, died in Afghanistan. And this is what he said. He said, I've personally met with President Trump at Mar-a-Lago. And the president's had two phone conversations with uh, the president of Afghanistan. Before the calls, we were advised to keep conversations short because we were told Trump was not interested in the details of the call. And he doesn't have a long attention span, so it'd be pointless to have a long call. But we were pleasantly surprised at how much time President Trump spent asking very informed questions. The first time the president spoke, the the questions Trump asked impressed us. How can you win in this fight against terrorism? What do you need to become financially independent? How many American businesses invest in Afghanistan? How can we develop business and mining in your country? Trump would listen intently after each question, often asking follow-ups. Trump's second call with our president was even longer than the first. Asking these types of questions for our country is something the Obama administration never did. The Obama administration was the most academic administration we've ever had to deal with, but the Trump administration has been the most thoughtful and intelligent. Trump continually asked, how can you win? What does Afghanistan need to win? In reference to our fight with terrorism, Trump wants to win. Sincerely, all the Obama administration wanted to do was not lose. The Obama administration was hesitant with us. The enemy could see that. When the Obama administration announced its plans to pull troops out of the region, they announced the exact date they would do it. So all our enemies had to do was wait Obama out. They knew the date they had to hang on to, which gave them the will to fight. They used that time to recruit and build up resources. To bring real reform, we must be able to defeat enemies outside our country and inside. We must overthrow the warlords. Every time we tried to remove one of them from power, Secretary of State uh, John Kerry would say no. The entire Obama administration was too cautious. But Kerry was the most cautious. Trump was very different from Obama in this way, and this is good for the future of Afghanistan. Wow, so that's the Afghan ambassador to America. So much there by saying Obama administration was academic, but Trump just wants to win. And again, we were told to keep it short because you know basically President Trump's stupid, doesn't have a long attention span, (laughs) and just totally blew that perception out of the water. I think that I don't know. I think that's a little comforting. Don't let your guard down. Certainly. But that's got to be a little comforting, right? Um, And then you got Mad Dog and you got McMaster, and uh, they want to win and they're asking them questions on how to do it. That's a good thing, right? Mike Slater showed the Blaze Radio Network. We'll see you next week. Spread the word.
1: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
0: Individuals and
3: business.